Welcome back to the NISO Experience. I am NISO President, Dr. Dan Stewart, and we are so pleased to bring our next session entitled Raging Hormones, Modern Weight Management with Dr. Laura Reardon. There has been a paradigm shift in the world of weight management. Weight is not a simple math equation of calories in and calories out. Rather, it is a chemistry problem with dozens of hormones, hundreds of chemical signals, and how they talk to the body and the brain. Today, we are going to learn about new evidence and how it is changing how patients living with weight and those problems are treated. Before we start the session, allow me to introduce Dr. Laura Reardon. Dr. Laura Reardon is the medical director at Lotus Health Clinic in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada, and focuses her clinical practice on diabetes and obesity. She is a board certified licensed physician of family medicine with a residency focus on bariatric medicine. Dr. Reardon is a diplomat of the American Board of Obesity Medicine and is currently working on a fellowship in clinical lipidology. She has a keen interest in obesity and diabetes research. She is an avid Ironman, can I say Iron Woman, triathlete and mother of three teenagers and one new baby boy. Dr. Reardon, thank you so much for being here today. We are so excited for your presentation. Please take it away. Wow, thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Meg, uh, behind the scenes and everyone at Nesso. I'm really honored to be here and really excited to be talking to a fun and different group of people that I'm used to, to speaking with. So this is really exciting and, and really, really honored to be here. So welcome uh, to what I hope will be a really interesting chat about raging hormones, what weight, what's weight got to do with it. And, uh, and, and which is really just a talk on modern weight management. Uh, I'm Dr. Laura Reardon. I work here in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Uh, the area of where I work in is bariatrics, as Dan mentioned. And I love to speak to a group of uh, orthodontists, orthodontists, actually, because I often describe what we do at our clinic as metabolic braces. Yes. Uh, which is kind of a funny thing to say, but I feel like what really good orthodontics is, it, you know, if you had a problem with your teeth or your jaw or your tooth alignment or many of one of many problems you guys have and know the DR experts in, um, but you use uh, brackets and wires and elastics and Invisalign as tools to manage and sort through, um, you know, dental ortho issues. And uh, the, often what you're doing is making an adjustment, you're having a patient come back quite quickly, measuring the response to treatment, and then based on that response, you make the next adjustment. And patients are with you for a period of time until those adjustments lead to the goal of improved kind of dental and ortho hygiene and, and optimal health it, it, with, with uh, kind of ortho status. So the, uh, that's what good ortho is. And, and we do very similar things in the bariatric world. Patients are with us for a period of time in our clinic, they're with us for a year. And in that time, we sort out your hormones, your metabolism, and uh, the tools that we use are not braces and Invisalign and wires and elastics and all the fancy things you guys use. The tools we use are different, but I want, it's very much a, much a, a similar concept. I, I often say that I'm a a hormone orthodontist, or sometimes patients call me a weightologist, but that, that's what I do. And that's kind of the concept of what we're going to be talking about today. So I love actually talking to orthodontists and saying we do something very similar, just different parts of the body. So let's jump in. I do have some disclosures, uh, some research grants, honorary advisory boards as seen on this slide. Um, what are we going to talk about today? What are our objectives? So I really want to talk about what weight, what the current landscape is around weight. And as Dan alluded to in um, uh, that lovely introduction, thank you. Uh, what is the paradigm shift around weight? Because we're looking at this uh, very differently than we have in the past. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about why we should uh, treat weight. We'll talk a little bit about how that relates to the ortho and dental world. And we'll talk then a little bit about how we treat weight and what modern, uh, what modern metabolic races look like. So that's what we're gonna do. So weight, what's the deal with weight these days? So um, I think generally speaking, the concept that we as bariatricians like to think of is that weight is no longer a lifestyle condition. It's not an aesthetic problem. One of our local government officials said to me one day, you know, Dr. Reardon, just because your patients don't like how they look in a dress, doesn't mean that you know we should be concerned about this from the medical standpoint, most importantly, the insurance 
coverage standpoint. And of course, after I want to lean in and strangle this person, um, what I try to inform uh, uh, government officials and patients and our community and our culture is that weight is no longer considered an aesthetic or lifestyle condition. It is a medical condition or in what we would very specifically consider to be a chronic medical condition. And it involves uh, the brain and body chemistry. And so we're gonna dive a little bit deeper into that. Uh, in a moment. So uh, along that line, we know that obesity is now, and with weight, is now recognized as a chronic disease and a global health issue. Um, many of the organizations like the Canadian Obesity Network, the Canadian Medical Association, I'm from Canada, but uh, for you guys south of the border, the World Health Organization, the American Association of, Association of Clinical Endocrinologists and the American Association of Medicine also now consider this to be a medical condition, not an aesthetic condition. So this is this is the overarching change that we're seeing uh, with regard to weight. Do you have some global statistics here and world trends on weight? I don't think it's any surprise to, to probably uh, us and anyone watching this that obesity and weight uh, is an emerging and developing problem globally. Uh, and this slide does demonstrate that uh, everywhere from the United States to England to Switzerland to Canada and Korea, um, that you, we are seeing increasing rates of obesity. This is a global trend and really a, a, another one of the global pandemics. We're of course, we're in a sort of more known global pandemic of COVID-19, uh, but over top of that is the global pandemic of obesity and diabetes. Here's our Canadian map uh, for those Canadians in the audience. Uh, we can see that uh, good old Newfoundland and Labrador, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick and the interior part of our country have the larger uh, statistics, pay the higher BMIs and uh, the lighter colors there are, are short people with less weight. And uh, we see similar demographics across the United States as well with certain states having more problems with obesity than others. Um, but, it, but it's very, uh, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a problem across all provinces, all states, certain provinces and states with um, bigger issues than others. Uh, so why would we treat weight? Why is it something that is important for us to treat? And I think, uh, and just to underline that this is not an aesthetic condition, that there are many comorbidities associated with weight. Uh, and I'd point out not caused by weight, associated with weight. And, and what I mean by that is it's not the weight itself causing these problems, they tend to cluster together. So what we see very predictably uh, when people are living with weight is we can see breathing problems, respiratory issues, uh, most notably sleep apnea. We can see um, uh, problems with the liver. I think fatty liver disease and non-alcoholic non fatty liver disease is something that is emerging and, and uh, emerging epidemic as well. Uh, we see gynecological um, abnormalities and infertility, of course, being one of the most notable of these. Uh, joint pain, not just because patients are living with extra weight and holding on to extra weight, but because weight is a hormonal problem and those hormones can also drive up inflammation. Uh, there's something called pseudotumor cerebrae, which is where patients um, uh, have a slight increase in uh, intracranial pressure and can cause migraines, actually one of the most misdiagnosed reasons for migraine. Uh, comorbid depression, anxiety is really high um, and uh, is, is a very common comorbidity with weight. Stroke, cancers, coronary artery disease, uh, diabetes are also extremely common. And so these are things we wanna try and avoid and treat along with treating, treating patients' uh, chronic condition of weight. How does this relate specifically to you guys in the dental world and specifically in the ortho world? So uh, I think it's probably not surprising to know that patients living with obesity are 5.9 more times likely than the person, people of lean or average weight um, to have problems with tooth decay and, and uh, inflammation around the gingiva. Um, and this is largely thought to be associated with kind of dietary changes, maybe with higher sugar and carbohydrate content. And I think that that connection is probably quite well established. What is less in what is less kind of understood, um, and maybe some of you guys are experts in this. Um, but what we do know is that, uh, in particular, around puberty, when patients are going through hormonal changes that we can, and changes in bone metabolism and growth, um, that you can see some abnormalities with patients living with weight that can also manifest, manifest in problems with ortho. And I, you know, it's really interesting because I have a uh, colleague of mine who lives out west in Vancouver in Canada, um, who actually is doing a study where he's looking at um, the changes in dental in jaws and dentition 
over the last 500 years to see if there's changes in the food supply and how jaws are formed. So wouldn't it be interesting to know that if that you guys actually are in, employable and your job is based on uh, changes that we see based on our food supplies. So maybe ortho exists and why wisdom teeth don't come in and why there's issues with crowding perhaps is stems from uh, issues around bone growth and metabolism uh, because of obesity uh, hormones and, and changes in our food supply. Uh, we also know that of course, instructive sleep apnea. And I think probably some of you guys make bite plates. Dan, do you make bite plates and things like that for patients who have obstructive sleep apnea? I think some clinicians get into repositioning appliances and uh, there's an orthodontic surgery which requires orthodontic appliances, you know, be it yeah. Invisalign or or braces to advance the jaws for permanent solution. Not everybody does that stuff, um, yeah. but the answer is, is the, is the yeah. profession involved in sleep apnea? Absolutely, the AAO has a white paper on it and the orthodontists are very interested in working with physicians on that. Yeah, yeah, so I figured there was a crossover there. So I thought I'd just sort of mention that because I assume there's probably all sorts of people there on the other side of this camera going, Dr. Reardon, of course we do that, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it is, it is that's where our worlds collide, right? Metabolism, hormones, bone growth, jaw growth, um, how shifts in teeth, you know, that they all very much influence each other. So uh, that's, what, that's where our worlds collide in obesity um, and orthodontics. Um, so we know that when we treat people living with weight that we can see really strong benefits. We know that even just a weight loss of five to 10% um, can show huge benefits in uh, reduction of risk of type two diabetes. Uh, we know that uh, including, you know, every down, every uh, decrease from one kilogram is in, is associated with a 16% relative risk reduction in diabetes, which is a big deal. Um, we know that uh, the benefit of weight loss can be seen in the reduction of cardiovascular risk factors. Uh, we can see improvements in blood pressure. This is something we often see very quickly um, in treatment. We can see improvements in uh, oh, sorry, to blood pressure. I mentioned blood pressure first because I was see predicting that, but we also see changes in lipid profiles. So we see improvements in lipid profiles, most notably triglycerides and good cholesterol. Um, we see improvements in blood pressure. Uh, and of course, that sleepy ap apnea connection. People have to lose a little bit more weight to see benefits with sleep apnea, um, but um, uh, we do have uh, juicy benefits there with um, more in the 10 to 15% total body weight loss after a year and obviously improvements in disability. So patients have improved quality of life, reduced pain, uh, increased mood, um, et cetera. So why is all of this happening? And, and, and uh, why, why the you know, current obesity, um, you know, why are we seeing these demographics? Why are we seeing an increase in obesity in our environment, in a world in front of us? And that's obviously a very complex issue and we'll touch a little bit on the complexity of that. Um, but I do wanna sort of point out a couple of really important things. First of all, where are we now? Where are we in the sort of uh, the culture myths around obesity? So what we have been telling patients and what our culture has been telling patients for uh, and what social media has been telling patients and what our institutions have been telling patients, we could go on and on, is that weight is a math problem, right? It's about calories in and calories out, um, that if you are living with extra weight, uh, that the solution to weight loss is to eat less and exercise more. And if that doesn't work, you're not trying hard enough and you need more willpower and you need more, uh, you need a better diet. You need more exercise. You need a personal trainer. Uh, you need more, uh, you know, uh, to really commit to something, right? You just need to try harder. And unfortunately for many people living with weight and maybe even some people in your audience have experienced this or know people have experienced that they've done this, right? They've tried the calorie in calorie out thing and either it doesn't work or it works and just doesn't sustain itself. Um, and that is because weight is far more complicated than simply calories in and calories out. So what we're gonna mostly talk about today is, is dispelling this myth. And hopefully at the end of this, you too will feel that, uh, that you can understand this in this more complex uh, way. So what, what we do know from studies, Dan, over many decades, and it's, it's really hard for people to really uh, to wrap their mind around these studies that we've known this for decades and yet they continue to be perpetuated these myths that you know eating less will help you lose weight and what we've known from many studies over many many decades is that people living with weight actually eat less than their lean weight counterparts so so this is a very consistent finding and I remember reading this when I was in med school a million years ago and and wondering huh well that doesn't really make sense 
It's strange, but yet we should all be eating less to get better anyway. Um, we also know, and we've known for many decades, that exercise doesn't really give weight loss. Um, exercise is very, of course, very healthy. It's very uh, good for our uh, body and our brains. Um, it's good for, um, it seems to be good for maintaining weight or being able to prevent weight gain. But once you have weight gain, it really statistically and, and from the evidence doesn't give us weight loss. Again, we've known this for many decades, and yet all of us want to be this thing. We want that sexy exercise to be the thing that fixes this problem, and yet it just doesn't. So I'm going to run you through a few very you know, famous studies for this. We could, I could probably show you 100 of these, but these are sort of the most notorious and well-known. Uh, something called the Women's Health Initiative, which was done many years ago, uh, presented in JAMA in 2006, showing that, yes, you can eat less and exercise more. You might. Some people, this doesn't even work on. Uh, but for many people, you get a very transitory weight loss. Um, you get weight plateau, weight regain, and you end up in the exact same place as patients who just have a, quote, normal diet, whatever normal diet is. Um, we also know from the biggest, I don't know if you, Dan, you remember the biggest loser, that big uh, TV show that was on years ago. Um, there was data that was generated from that. And, and uh, in front of you is the slide of all the different patients or a couple of different patients. And what we saw most notably from the biggest loser data is that patients lost weight, and, and this, by the way, was extreme uh, calorie restriction and extreme exercise. So these patients were often on 500 to 800 calories. They were exercising nonstop with the fitness trainer lady uh, who was you know, beating them up all day long. And, and so these patients would lose weight, they would hit a plateau, and then they would re regain and more importantly, and you'll, you'll, you see that on sort of the uh, left-hand side of the screen, on the right-hand side of the screen, what we learned from The Biggest Loser was that this effect of eat less, exercise more actually slowed people's metabolisms. So the, the, the right-hand side of the column, you'll see patients who lost weight. What was really happening as they lost weight is their metabolism started to slow, um, then they got weight regain, and their metabolism st stayed broken and stayed slow for at least six years after they lost weight. So basically they were losing weight through calorie restriction and exercise. They lost, they plateaued, they regained, and in the process broke their metabolisms and they slowed their metabolisms and, and for at least six years. So these, these are data we know are very reproducible. We see it again and again and again. Um, so what we learn is that in large studies, uh, there's no real significant benefit of calorie restriction um, and, and, and extreme exercise. And we know what this does is that you get a reduction in resting metabolic rate and T3 decreased, which is basically part of your uh, thyroid system. Um, and so, uh, you know, you sort of look at this data and you think, well, how are we going to ever lose weight? How, you know, how do you lose weight if you don't eat less and exercise more? And so I guess, you know, what many years ago, the question was asked, well, is there a way to lose weight without slowing your metabolism, right? Are there any, and I have this sort of rainbow unicorn leprechaun guy in the bottom of the screen, because you can say to yourself, well, is there a magical way in which you can lose weight and not slow your metabolism down? And as it turns out, there are, and I'm not going to dwell too long on this, but I do want to just kind of mention that there are numbers of ways that we do know that you can lose weight um, through and not get and not get to slow metabolism, and that's largely because these are hormonal interventions. These interventions, these things that we do, change hormones. They don't change calories. So um, it, it, this, uh, we're going to talk about this and how many things can affect obesity, affect weight, most notably hormones. So the magical way that we can lose weight um, and not have the metabolism fight back is actually bariatric surgery. So everyone says, oh, great. Do I have to have bariatric surgery to lose weight now? No, not everybody has to not, you know, bariatric surgery is a very good option for a lot of patients, um, but it's not for everyone. Um, but what, why I use bariatric surgery as an example is that it is a very famous way in which patients lose a lot of weight and do not get a metabolic fight back. And what you can see in this slide is basically a very fancy uh, slide with all sorts of numbers and, and lines and um, and annotation really to show you that with um, the uh, bariatric surgery, you get a slight decrease in resting metabolic rate, and then it goes back to normal after bariatric surgery and patients have lost a lot of weight. Uh, this is well known. We know this very well in the bariatric community. And so I guess the reason why is it that patients lost weight in bariatric surgery? I think a lot of people are under the misconception that bariatric surgery is about making your stomach small. 
reducing the calories that you eat. And that must be how it works, right, Dr. Laura? No, that's not how bariatric surgery works at all. How bariatric surgery works is they go into your stomach and they make your stomach smaller. And most notably what they're doing is taking away uh, the cells, these things called G cells, which makes a hormone called ghrelin. So what bariatric surgery is really do, doing is removing the part of your stomach that makes hunger hormones. It's a metabolic surgery that influences hormones. So uh, you get a decrease in something called ghrelin, which is a, hum uh, a hormone that makes your stomach uh, or it makes you hungry. And we, say, we always say in the metabolic world that ghrelin makes your stomach growl. It's the most powerful hunger hormone in a bariatric surgery. The cells that make this are removed, right? So it's, a, it's not about making your stomach smaller. It's about decreasing the hunger hormone ghrelin. We also know that when the stomach is made smaller and reattached to the small intestine, that there's an increase in a hormone called GLP-1. And GLP-1 is a powerful satiety hormone. It regulates appetite signals. And we're going to talk later about GLP-1. But what I want to point out is that what what the method of weight loss that works is changing hormones, right? Remember the talk, it's about raging hormones. It's all about hormones. So in bariatric surgery, why it works is because you're decreasing the hormone ghrelin, increasing the hormone GLP-1. People get weight loss without resting metabolic rate decrease. We also know that there's a number of other ways that seem to be able to provide weight loss without decrease in resting metabolic rate. One most notably, which is a very uh, interesting topic these days, which is intermittent fasting. And this next slide, what it demonstrates is changes in food, food intake and that you can see this consistent uh, baseline and end uh, line um, resting metabolic rate that stays the same um, as patients lose weight and as they're getting decreased exposure to the hormone insulin, which is basically the hormone that's influenced during intermittent fasting. Uh, and the same thing with uh, what we call LCHF metabolic word studies, which is when patients have lower carbohydrate, increased uh, protein and fat consumption. And this too seems to indicate that patients in this mode, uh, in this this modality, this intervention, are able to decrease exposure to insulin, uh, the hormone insulin, and they're able to lose weight without a decrease. In fact, they, um, they do seem to see, have an increase in rest, metabol resting metabolic rate at some stage and uh, do quite well with weight loss. So what this tells us, what these sort of gives us uh, an inkling of is that this is really about hormones. This is really about body chemistry, not about math. And it shifts the paradigm to thinking about this as a metabolic condition, as a hormonal condition in the body and in the brain. And I think what's also important to recognize is that there are many parts of the brain that influence weight. And, and uh, I won't linger on this too long because this is really quite a complex discussion and we can get into the nitty gritty of this. But I think what I like to get patients to think about is that weight is really about chemistry, it's about hormones. And there are really dozens of hormones, hundreds of chemical signals that speak to the brain and then the brain speaks back to us to determine whether we should be actively gaining or actively losing or remaining weight stable. There are many problems along the way that can happen, right? And my job as an expert in weight management is to figure out what hormone, what connection, what part of the brain is really influencing that person's weight. Because I think what's, you know, another really important concept around modern weight management is to recognize that not all people living with weight have the same problem. There are some common problems that we see uh, a lot, just like, you know, Dan, in your practice, you probably see a lot of common ortho problems and there's very common solutions to that, but there's also some more unusual things. And as, as experts in this, as specialists in this, um, what we're really um, in, inclined, it, or really it's very important for us to do is have a wide differential for the problem we see in front of us. Just like you have a wide differential for things in ortho, I have a wide differential for things in weight and obesity. And so along the pathway of the hundreds of hormones, dozens, or sorry, dozens of hormones, uh, hundreds of chemical signals, there's many parts of the brain that, that are being spoken to. There's uh, what we call the hypothalamus or the thermostat of the brain. There's the, the mesolimbic system, the reward center of the brain, uh, which we sometimes call the volcano. It's the wanting center, the emotional center of the brain. You know, the hypothalamus is kind of like, you know, Dan, if you think about, um, you know, we have appetite, you know, when we're hungry and when we're full and our stomach is growling and we eat because we need to have a nutritional event. We are hungry, we need energy and we eat because we need the broccoli and the steak and, you know, all that good stuff and that sort of eating to live. There's the other parts of the brain that are involved in sort of 
eating beyond nutrition, right? These are eating to meet your emotional needs, right? And this is why we need the creme brulee and the chocolate chip cookies and the ice cream. And often those are eaten in times of emotional stress or emotional highs, feeling good, feeling bad, feeling stressed, feeling boredom. There's a COVID pandemic and there's nothing else to do, right? So that center of the brain is also really important to respect. And then we also have another sort of fancy part of the brain. This is sort of a nuanced part of the brain that's influenced by weight uh, uh, or can influence weight is what we call the prefrontal cortex uh, or the executive seat of the brain. This is the decision part of the brain. This is, this is sort of where people can get into trouble um, if there's a hormonal imbalance or connectivity imbalance. Um, you can get into trouble with um, problems of mindless eating or just eating because it's there. Um, it, it's a little different than cravings. It's sort of just uh, mindless eating, if you will. Um, and we see some comorbid uh, connection that with ADD, people with low executive functioning. And that's also something important that we, you know, as bariatricians, we always have to keep in our mind. So you have dozens of hormones, hundreds of chemical signals, speaking to the brain and speaking to the various parts of the brain. Plus we have the interconnectivity of all these parts of the brain. So it gets very complex very quickly. And, and so uh, we have to always be, you know, sort of cognizant of every patient is different and where, what parts of the brain or what parts of that symphony playing to the brain can be misaligned or misfiring. Um, the, just to give you sort of an example of some of this body chemistry, we know with regard to that thermostat, that, 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 that sort of set point of are you hungry or are you full part of the brain is highly influenced by that hormone that I talked to you before made in the stomach called ghrelin. And ghrelin is made in the stomach, it goes to, it crosses the blood brain barrier, it goes to the hypothalamus and it tells you you're hungry powerful hunger signal, which, you know, I would argue is almost impossible to deny. Denying ghrelin is not about willpower. It's about, you know, just clear raw animal instinct, right? This is chemistry we're talking about here. The hormones make you do it. And, and with ghrelin, it's really important to recognize how powerful that signal is. Then we have other hormones. And by the way, these are just a few um, that are very highly studied. Uh, there's a hormone called amylin, a hormone called insulin, which is made in the pancreas. Um, in the fat tissue, we have leptin and, and, and adiponectin. Uh, and in the gut, we have PYY, GLP-1, and CCK. All of these hormones, these are peripheral hormones made in our organs um, that are working very complex ways to, again, cross the blood-brain barrier and speak to that hypothalamus to tell you you're full, right? So you have hormones that tell you when you're hungry, hormones that tell you you're full, and these can get screwed up. And when they get screwed up, you come to see me and we get them sorted out. <laughs> but I think it's re about recognizing that this is this is really good hormones. At least that's, that's one example, right? This is the peripheral hormone speaking to that hypothalamus or thermostat. We can also have connectivity problems, receptor problems, and you know, really pretty uh, you know, complex stuff. So if we're thinking of this as a symphony of hormones playing to the brain, the brain playing back to our body with regard to weight, how do we fix this, right? And if we, you go back to that analogy of metabolic braces and Dr. Laura Reardon is a weightologist or a metabolic orthodontist, however <laughs> we want to call it. Um, what I often say is, you know, just like you guys use braces and Invisalign and wires and the, your, your fancy equipment, which I don't even know half of the stuff that you guys use, in medical weight loss, we use different tools and we use different strategies. So I often talk to patients about the three pillars of weight loss. Uh, we have the first pillar, which we call the lifestyle pillar. And this is the stuff that you guys out there are probably more familiar with. These are the changes um, around kind of cleaning up your food environment. Uh, we know that uh, we've sort of uh, moved away from the calories in, calories out model and exercise yourself after death model. What we now, the evidence points to what's more important is what you eat and when you eat. And so we do a lot of counseling in our office around that. We have a dietitian in our office who really helps people with this pillar. What to eat, when to eat. We talk a lot about intuitive eating, learning about what hunger is and respecting that and eating when you're hungry. What does fullness feel like? Um, and then, uh, you know, learning about what fullness is and, you know, correcting the body chemistry so you can feel fullness often for the first time uh, for many patients. Um, and what's the difference between hunger and cravings? And that's a big one that we talk a lot about, all, uh, uh, about a, a lot in our office as well. So that intuitive eating piece, um, what and when to eat. So yeah, so we have the second pillar, which is what we call CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, which is the uh, what we call the psychological or behavior change pillar. This is the understanding that uh, things like sleep and stress and injury and illness and emotional eating also factor largely and, and have very high 
impact on your body chemistry and your body hormones and can also affect your weight. So uh, we do a lot of counseling around this, um, and particularly emotional eating, why you eat, right? It's not, you know, I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, if I just had enough willpower and I just had the right diet, I would stop eating and I would get this under control. And I think a deeper explanation around why is really important for a lot of patients to get better and most importantly, sustain their improved health and their weight loss. So that's a really key one. And, and is, you know, we again could spend three hours just talking about this one particular pillar, uh, but just to enlighten people around that there is such a thing as psychological behavior change for people living with weight. Um, now, the third pillar in medical weight loss is medication. Um, and it's really medication and surgery. So bariatric surgery fits into this third pillar of medical weight loss. I don't do surgery, but many of you listening, um, many of the people like me work in bariatric surgery clinics. I'm a bariatrician, which makes me the medical side of things. But many uh, clinics in the United States have a combination of medication or med people like me, bariatricians who do the medical side. And they also have bariatric surgeons who do the surgery side. And medication and surgery uh, are both in this third pillar. And surgery is a very valid option for many patients. It just turns out that we live in an era where we now have medications which are safe and effective. They have been studied, you know, we're not making these in our basements and selling them out of our clinics. These are prescription medications that have been studied in very big and important um, studies and published in really reputable journals and are safe, effective for weight loss, can be life-changing tools to support the other two pillars um, to get uh, improved, uh, you know, health and improved weight loss. And, you know, these medications, uh, you know, have now really recently, we're talking in the last six months or so, are, can together with the other two pillars be as effective as bariatric surgery for weight loss. So this is new. This is a new world we're living in for the long time, longest time. You know, I've been a bariatrician for many years now, and we were always sort of trying to keep up to the bariatric surgeons who were quotes, the gold standard and doing the best. Well, now medical weight loss is caught up and, and we can do as well as surgery. And we're hoping that we can even surpass surgery as an outcome. And certainly uh, a surgery isn't an option for everyone and not everyone with weight you know, here in our community, 63% of our patients are living with weight surgery is just not an option for everyone. So uh, how can we go forward with this? So these are the braces, the lifestyle, the CBT, the, the psychological pillar and the medications are the tools we use in medical weight loss. They are used just like you guys use your tools in a customized way on a case-by-case -case basis. Every patient is different and every patient has a little bit of a different journey, um, but these tools are, are sort of the skeleton, the, the, the tools that we're using. So I wanted to spend a little time talking about the third pillar of medication, just because for most people, like people are kind of familiar with lifestyle changes and some modern dietary strategies. Um, they might be more familiar with emotional eating. There's lots of information out there on that. Um, but I do want to talk a little bit about medication just very briefly, because these things can be, they're, they're kind of exciting, right? They're, they're, they're sort of the game changer for my world. And a lot of people, you know, they think, oh, medications, they're not safe. They're going to be awful. And, and they can be really, really uh, excellent. Medication alone, just so you know, is not treatment. It would be like you guys, you know, putting brackets on someone's teeth and saying, okay, come back in a year, your teeth are going to be straight. It's all about the adjustments of these things that makes the difference. So the, some people, their path is smooth. Some people, it's more complicated. Um, but the, those, all those pillars create that what I call the three-legged stool to be able to sit on. One uh, pillar, one leg of the stool doesn't necessarily do it. Um, so these medications, just again, are not treatment unto themselves, but they can be really important tools to getting patients, uh, you know, healthier. Um, the, uh, for, for full disclosure, I'm mostly men I'm mentioning the medications. I'm a Canadian physician, so we have three medications that are Health Canada approved. Um, so I'm mentioning them because they're the ones I have most experience with. Um, I did all of my training in uh, the United States. I did my bariatric fellowship in the United States, uh, specifically in Chicago and at the Duke University Medical Weight Loss Center. So I'm very familiar with the medications um, that you guys use in the US, and I can mention those briefly, but I'm mostly focusing on the ones that are available here in Canada. So the first medication is some, and these are available in Canada and the United States, uh, Sixenda, which is the uh, brand name, Liraglutide is the generic name, it came out in 2015. It's a once daily injection of the hormone GLP-1. 
So as you guys might have heard me say through this, this uh, talk a number of times, is that GLP-1 is the hormone that is, regulates appetite. It's one of the hormones that increases when you have bariatric surgery. We now can give this hormone to patients, which gets them healthier. It helps regulate and mediate appetite, and it gets people weight loss. Um, it's for people with a BMI over 30 or a BMI over 27 and a comorbidity. It's injected daily. There are some common side effects. There's usually some GI side effects of nausea, constipation, fatigue, can get some acid reflux. These are usually mild, transient, and they always go away with time. So it's important to uh, know that these side effects can be quite well managed. Um, you can't take any of these medications if you're pregnant or nursing, not because it's dangerous, they just have not been tested. And you can't have a history of uh, medullary thyroid cancer or MEN tumors in your family history or personal history. These medications do not cause thyroid cancer. There has been no association with thyroid cancer in humans, but it is really important to know we have to screen those people out. So sometimes people get freaked out by those things, but you're not at increased risk for cancer by taking these. You just have to make sure people don't have that history. Now, for our uh, partners and friends across the border in the United States, there is a new medication that has been FDA approved for you guys in 2021, just very, very recently. And I have heard from many of my colleagues south of the border um, that uh, this medication has flown off the shelves and may not even be available, even if you wanted it, because it's been so popular. Um, it's a medication that is also a GLP-1. Uh, many of us in Canada might know it as the medication Ozempic. Um, which is a diabetes medication in Canada and the United States, but it, a version of this medication, basically a higher dose of this medication, is, uh, which is a long-acting GLP, um, it's long-acting semaglutide, um, it's called Wegevi down uh, your way in the United States, um, it's a long-acting GLP, it's a once-weekly injection, so it's something you take weekly, Again, the side effects and the contraindications are the same as the previous medication, it just works better. So this is the new, uh, new world we're talking about where these newer medications are giving us a weight loss equivalent to bariatric surgery and, and really changing people's lives in, in a really, really significant way. So for you in the US, um, you keep your eye open for Wegebi, Google it, you'll see some pretty astounding uh, results and some amazing stuff and that it's probably flying off the shelves. And because it's flying off the shelves for you guys, um, our launch in Canada has been delayed. At least that's the rumor. Hopefully I won't get into trouble for <laughs> announcing this. I'm giving away you know, secrets um, from, from Canada. But I, I, the, uh, the talk, the scuttlebutt, the rumors have been that Canada's launch of Wegovy has been delayed because it has been so successful in the United States. So keep your eye open for this medication, which is really just hormone replacement of that hormone GLP-1. And by the way, GLP replacement has many studies showing improvements uh, for really improved health benefits across the board. People feel better, their mood improves, their quality of life improves, blood pressure comes down, cholesterol improves, you're less likely to have a heart attack or a stroke on this medication. Um, you, you, yeah, it treats fatty liver disease, weight, uh, extra weight, it treats um, vitamin D deficiency. Uh, and so the, the, the benefits of these medications go on and on. Um, and uh, it, it really makes my job pretty great when you have a wonderful tool, wonderful safe tool um, to, to help patients get healthier. There are a couple of other medications that are well-known in Canada are also prescribed in the United States. One of them is called naltrexone bupropion. Um, this medication works at the brain level. This works at the brain level. It helps correct things at the thermostat. It helps correct hunger. Um, it also is a tremendous, you know, we talk a little bit about how sometimes people don't eat because they're hungry. They eat because they have emotional eating issues, right? They're eating because they're bored. They're eating because they're sad. They're eating because they're mad. They're eating because it's a COVID pandemic and what in the heck else are you going to do? And so we call this cravings, right? If you're eating emotionally often, sort of the way we describe this is cravings. And this particular medication is really good for helping with cravings. So it's not so much the metabolic side as the GLP-1 medications are, but it helps really with some weight loss, and it helps with control of cravings and demonstrating restraint around making eating more mindful, sort of helps put on the brakes of eating. It helps decrease the wanting or cravings and also helps at the thermostat level. So Contrave, I mentioned Contrave because it has um, excellent benefits uh, for not just weight loss, but also cravings. And for people who live with emotional eating or, or excessive cravings, this medication can be really helpful. Again, available both in Canada and the United States.
Um, there's also another medication that's available in both Canada and the United States, something called Orlistat or Stat or Zeneca. Uh, it's, it's been around for a long time, since 1991. It basically prevents the absorption of fat in the gut. And for that reason, some patients lose weight. It's also for that reason, a lot of patients have um, kind of side effects that are unpopular, things like oily spotting, fecal discharge, and anal incontinence, which are not highly um, looked for in patients. Um, so it's one we use less of, um, and it can cause problems like malabsorption and vitamin deficiency. And for me, it doesn't work at the hormone level, and it doesn't work at the brain level. So it kind of goes against my, uh, you know, in the modern treatment of weight, which is that this is about hormones and body chemistry and brain connections and 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 the that, that emotional seat, the third thermostat and executive functioning. So we, with this medication is sort of falling by the wayside. In the United States, there's you have many more medica medications, things like fenteramine, uh, uh, quiznia, which is another medication. Um, so you, you may be familiar with more things in the United States, but I mentioned more of the medications that are available both in Canada and the United States. And of course that WEGV, which you guys have, and we will hopefully have soon. So I'm going to wrap things up there. Uh, there's lots more I could talk about, but I'm gonna try and leave a little bit of time. Hopefully I've left a little time for questions, Dan. Um, I really wanna leave you with the idea that weight is a complex chronic disease and really is about chemistry and not math. That weight is something that's now treatable. It's something that we can do to help our patients. And we really need to change the tune around what this looks like. Um, treatment does need to be customized just like treatment for your patients needs to be customized. We have our tools that are standard, but how you use them the artistry of how you use them and for that individual sitting in front of you is where the magic lies. And it's really ultimately about patients' values, what they're looking for, what their goals are. Um, that, I, 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 that we know that lifestyle and behavior change are really important pillars and that there's that option of medication for the safe, effective support. So that is my talk, Dan. Let her rip. Give me the grill. Sure. Um, first, I just want to thank you so much for that very insightful uh, look at um, weight loss. I know that um, it's it's hard to not believe what we see online or what our trainers tell us or those kinds of things. Um, and, and in no way do we want to say exercise is bad. We know it's good. But um, I know you, you know, we talked about some questions, but I would like to uh, I'd like to explore just a little bit about, you know, who is this for? And that is, you know, you know, I'm a, I'm a dad, you know, I've got three, three girls and, and, you know, one's a teenager, you know, the other in their twenties, who, who is this for? And, and, you know, is it, is it something you use in a teenager is something as an adult, or maybe, maybe uh, as you're older, just what are your thoughts on that? Great question. And I think really what you're pointing to is, you know, who it, it, it's this, you know, anybody living with weight or feeling like they don't have control of their weight, ultimately, that this is for. Um, not everyone sort of qualifies for medication support necessarily, although uh, we do have guidelines around BMI, which are very, you know, about BMI of 27 and a comorbidity is not hard to find. That's that's a low bar. And, and that qualification for medication, uh, it fits a lot of patients, in fact, most patients in family medicine. Um, Though, you know, as an expert in weight management, I don't love BMI as the be all end all. And, and if I have patients who are rapidly like, let's say they, let's say you have someone with an injury, or they're put on a medication and have suddenly gained 20 pounds and just doesn't have control of it. That's someone with a weight issue, right? And I'm not looking at their weight to determine, oh, can that person receive treatment yet? If you feel that you are living with extra weight, if you feel that there's something going on with your metabolism, that's a problem. And, and seeking treatment from someone like myself who really understands hormones and the hormones of your metabolism it's really important. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, it's got to be my thyroid. It's almost never the thyroid, but it, it often can be other hormones. And so I think it's really important to seek out treatment. I think along that line, Dan, I think a lot of people think that, you know, oh, people who need treatment for weight are, are people who, who, who are, have severe obesity, right? Those are the people who need treatment for weight. I think um, young people, I think treating this early is, we, we have really good evidence that to show that treating this early in the process is really important. Treating patients earlier in their lives is really important. So people can go on to live lives free of, of morbidity, right? So that they can go on to have, um, they don't develop problems like fatty liver and hypertension and dyslipidemia and cancers and uh, problems with infertility, right? So intervening early in someone's life is really important so they can go on and live a healthy and happy life. Um, and, and I'm not saying people living with weight 
uh, shouldn't be happy or shouldn't be loved or shouldn't be cared for and shouldn't be respected and shouldn't be giving the job. Um, but I don't think that living with extra weight is necessarily a healthy thing. And, and uh, you know, I, I think loved at every weight, respected at every weight, opportunities at every weight, but I don't think that there's necessarily, um, I think what, what, you know, if you're living with extra weight, it's hard to imagine that patients are feeling and are healthy. And so what we should be really working towards is improved health. And I would say there's a lovely side effect of weight loss when you get someone healthier. And so, uh, you know, I think treating early, treating early in the process, treating all patients. Um, we, we mostly, uh, medications that we use um, are for mostly adult, like 18 and above. Um, there is a new study that does show benefit of GLP, ben, um, GLP safety and efficacy um, in age groups 12 to 18. Um, so there's some, now some evidence for that. It's not quite Health Canada and FDA approved yet for weight management, but it will be. And, and that's coming for ages 12 and above. So stay tuned for that for the adolescent group. Right. And uh, just to follow up on that, I think anybody who is, you know, trying to glean, is there something for me in this in this presentation? Um, you know, here in Canada, we see Ozempic on TV all the time. And then the, you know, the, the other American drug is something that you can inject once a week. I think if people look into that, you know, they say, oh boy, the side effect, you know, thyroid issues, you know, or, or cancer, which we've seen in mice. And, and I'd like you to, you know, yes, reassure yeah. people with those studies, because it, it's a difference between mice and humans and also pancreatitis. Can you just speak about, you know, if somebody's looking at that and saying, well, that's not for me. Can you speak to those two side effects? Yeah, great, great question, Dan. You really giving the good stuff. So, uh, yes, yeah, so we know that the, one of the contraindications of uh, all GLP medications is that you can't be pregnant, you can't be breastfeeding, mostly because there just haven't been studied. There, there's been no evidence it does harm in those situations, but we just it just hasn't been studied. Um, the third thing is MEN tumors or medullary thyroid cancer history, either family history or personal history of those types of cancers. Now, that contraindication stems from the animal studies done in mice 20 years ago. Um, and what was discovered is there was a slight signal, a slight increase in medullary thyroid cancer in mice given GLP. Medullary thyroid cancer is in MEN tumors are very common in mice because they have abnormal and different calcitonin channels. So if you want to get really fancy, it's the calcitonin physiology uh, and metabolism in mice that makes them different. And so thyroid cancer and medullary thyroid cancer specifically is very common in mice. And so because of this small signal seen in mice, um, it was recommended that when things move to human studies and human trials, that um, the recommendation was made that no human with a history of MEN tumor, tumors or medullary thyroid cancers um, were allowed to get this medication. And so it was a contraindication set long before it was ever given to humans. Now, since then, um, there has been a tremendous amount, you know, there've been many, many uh, uh, phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials in multiple versions of GLP, short and long acting GLP. So many, you know, many years of this data in really big studies have been accurately collected. And, and every three or four months or so, I sit in on the analysis of this meta metadata, basically looking for signals of this hormone, because I prescribe it so often, I, I really, is my job to make sure it stays safe and I look for any signals and things that I can share with my patients. And there has yet been no signal for any cancer actually. Um, and they're looking for lots because of course, anyone on a hormone, they worry about cancer signals. Um, there has been no signal for any form of cancer in semaglutide. Um, there's been no uh, signal for um, thyroid cancer in any of the GLPs. So the, it, it's a very safe medication. It's safer than the birth control pill. Um, with regard to, uh, you know, morbidity and cancer risk. So, you know, we give the birth control pill to people when they're 14 um, and, and carry risk with it far greater than the risk of GLP-1 replacement. So um, it's, it's pretty safe in that respect. And hopefully that explains that. Now you mentioned pancreatitis. Pancreatitis is a rare um, side effect of GLP medications. In my 10 years of prescribing it, I've seen one patient with a mild pancreatitis. She had some belly pain. She had a pancreatitis. She stopped the GLP and she got better. Um, so pancreatitis is a slight risk. It is associated, and when you talk to the experts on this, it's associated with biliary function. So if patient has gallstones or they have what's called biliary sludging, um, which means that, uh, you know, that bile isn't traveling well through um, the liver or the biliary system, including the gallbladder, you can lead to um, some irritation in the pancreas. Um, it, it's typically associated with gallstones, the most common pancreatitis, like most of the time we see pancreatitis or has been 
you know, observe pancreatitis in patients on GLP, it is because of a gallstone pancreatitis. It's a gallstone that slipped into the pancreatic duct and caused a pancreatitis. It's obstructive, meaning it's not directly affecting the pancreas, it's sludging the system up so the pancreas gets backed up and, and it gets inflamed. And the, the other cases have been really probably loosely confirmed to be associated with biliary sludging which is basically the same problem. It's just not a stone. It's a sludge from the, from the liver directly um, that blocks the, the primary sort of bile duct there and, and causes so the pancreatic juices to back up and cause a little bit of inflammation. So it's not a direct effect on the pancreas. It's more of an indirect because of um, the, the bile in the liver. It's a rare side effect and not something I worry too much about. But if I have patients, um, you know, as I say, one in 10 years um, who has a lot of belly pain, we just have a high index of suspicion for it. We catch it, we stop the medication and they get better. Great, great. And then they complain they can't go back on it again. <laughs> That's what actually happens. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, could you uh, maybe talk about typical cases that you see? I think everybody's like, okay, well, how much, how much weight would a person lose? I, I know that some of us look at that body mass index chart and go, oh, no, there's no way. You know, my height is this, there's no way I should weigh that. Um, after being schooled in this a little bit, I was really shocked to learn they're they're pretty close. And I know you don't um, push that a lot, but I think that people don't realize um, how well you can do. Could you talk about you know maybe a few sample cases of patients that you would typically see? Sure. So Dan, I'll start with um, you know as a scientist, I'll tell you our data. I'll tell you the data in the. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you some of the numbers and I, um, what we the data on this sort of is pretty shocking. So if you look at what we would consider as kind of classic weight loss strategies, the sort of commercial weight loss programs that are out there, things like Weight Watchers, I hope I don't get in trouble for saying that, but commercial weight loss programs, um, things that have counting calories, counting points, um, going to see a dietitian who makes you count calories, um, going to a personal trainer to exercise, um, going to Nutrisystem, OptiFast, the latest diet. And, and there was actually a really good group out of the US that uh, a couple of years ago, very controversially did the metadata on, uh, uh, and it was retrospective, right? So it is, you know, it's not perfect data, but it's retrospective sort of survey and combination metadata. And, and what they showed was the average weight loss of someone who um, just is told to lose weight is 0% weight loss after a year. So if someone says, hey, Dan, you should, or hey, Lord, Dr. Laura, you look like you could lose a few pounds. Um, and if they say you should lose weight, the, the average patient, if they hear that information, 0% weight loss. If you go to a commercial weight loss program, you go to a personal trainer, a dietitian, the average weight loss is two to 4% after a year, which I sometimes call a good day on the toilet. It's not a lot of weight loss. And, and more importantly, in the United States and Canada, you need to achieve 5% weight loss to actually be considered treatment. So most people out there, what they are doing right now to manage their weight is not even treatment. So if you're reading the latest book or you're counting calories or you're counting points or you're going to a personal trainer in an effort to lose weight, I'm not saying that some people can't do that. If you have metabolic flexibility, some people can do this and get some success for a period of time. For, but for the largest majority of people who are living with weight, this just isn't gonna work. And the data shows this two to 4% after a year when 5% is the bar. So it's not even treatment for most people. Okay, and if we look at these studies, uh, most notably the SCALE trial, the CORE trials, the, sustain, uh, the uh, STEP trials on obesity medications, um, the average weight loss seen in those medica in just medication is around eight to 10% total body weight loss after a year. So a big improvement, right, from that two to four. So you add medication into the mix, you just go to your family doctor and you get the medication, you can expect a little bump up. Now, if you go to see an expert like myself, right, the you go to see you know, the equivalent of you guys in the metabolic world. You go to see us and you use those three pillars, right? The lifestyle changes, the behavior change pillar, medication supported by one of those medications, the data changes again. So now we start to see, uh, and what we see in our clinic is 18 to 30% total body weight loss after a year. And that is very consistent finding in, in sort of global gold standard clinics like ours at Lotus Health is an 18 to 30% weight loss, 18% being the total average, 30% being a group of people we call responders. And this is smack dab what you would see in the results of a bariatric surgery clinic. So this is very impressive weight loss. Um, so if you take your own weight out there and you, you subtract 18 to 30%, this is what is possible and very realistic to lose 
and keep off more importantly. So that's the data. Now, what are average patients? We see all sorts of patients. We see young people um, who are young, healthy women often, but young men too, who have their whole life in front of them. Uh, they might be living with, you know, 30, 40, 60 extra pounds. Um, they often, uh, they can, you know, at this age, develop fatty liver. Uh, they don't often have developed the chronic uh, comorbidities like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, though sometimes they can have high triglycerides. Um, but a lot of these people have what we would call sort of brain fog, uh, decreased energy, and certainly the stigmatization of what it's like living with extra weight in, with their peers. And if we do intervene with these young people and you, with, with real treatment, you can change the course of, of young lives and, and is one of the things that we see quite commonly. We see a lot of people um, with uh, diabetes and prediabetes. Um, we see a lot of uh, people with low energy, um, maybe comorbid depression and anxiety um, with living with weight. And as we get them healthier, um, it's amazing how, how much better they feel and how much better the quality of their life can be. Um, we have a lot of women we see postpartum. Uh, after having pregnancies or women who after, you know, they're like, well, this all kind of started after I had baby number three or baby number one. And it just never, things didn't really bounce back um, the way they did. And, and largely that, that's because of hormones, right? Is pregnancy is a hormonal condition that can kind of trap you in, in an anti-starvation hormonal state. And in some women, it bounces right back and some women it doesn't. And so pregnancy can be a trigger. Menopause can be a trigger. Manopause can be a trigger. So men hitting their sort of middle age, they see a drop in testosterone and increase in estrogen um, and can notice decreases in their hormones. And we um, can see uh, improvements in, in those patients. Um, we also see see uh, menopausal, you know, women who hit menopause, men, men who hit menopause and, 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 and hit that moment. And, and we can really interject metabolically and, and uh, at the brain level to, to make a big difference. So those are some of the, uh, and we have patients who've had previous heart attacks, previous strokes uh, who come in and, and um, you know, just get healthier. We turn back the metabolic clock, so to speak. Well, sort of naming me in that group there, I just want to say, um, it's uh, the reason Dr. Laura Reardon is here, of course, is that I watched people come visit me over COVID at a distance, you know, to throw me something on my doorstep and said, how did you lose that weight? Everybody else is putting it on. Um, and then in our own family, um, you know, I send a sacrificial lamb, my wife, I guess, um, first. But um, I, you know, was just so pleasantly surprised with the changes that I saw with people around me. These are people that I love and you know, want to live a long time. And it didn't register until my insurance company said, hey, your A1C is tested at this and you're pre-diabetic and we're jacking your insurance rates. And I said, what? So with some help from Dr. Laura Reardon, um, game changer, game changer. Um, so yeah, cool. incredible, uh, incredible. And um, I will say that, you know, I, I think it's bigger than that. I think that, you know, when we don't realize our insulin levels are just being held at this high level and you can work out and do all you want and it's just not gonna, it's not gonna help you until your insulin levels drop. And I think bigger picture is that when you're, uh, when, you, when, you, when you take the load off all the other systems in the body, you know, we wanna live as long as we can. And um, I'm not sure where I'd be without you. Quite honestly, you know, some of my colleagues are having a tough time. They're tired out. They're, they've had enough. They're worn out. And uh, I just want to thank you for changing it all, truthfully. Geez, Dan, thank you for sharing your personal story. That's uh, that I'm kind of, uh, yeah, overwhelmed by that. Thank you for, for being, you know, uh, for sharing. I think that's amazing. And I'll tell you, to me, uh, you know, you can measure success and, and probably very similar to your patients that you see, uh, you can measure success in metrics, right? How, you know, in your case, how teeth straightened people's teeth are, or how good their bites are. In our clinic, you can measure those metrics of weight loss and how many pounds and how many BMI points and how much fat people lose. But to me, actually the best measure of success and how we measure success in our clinic is um, actually things that aren't numbers, right? So how patients feel, their improved vitality, their increased energy, uh, it, it improved quality of life, an improved relationship with food. And, you know, many patients will tell us that, you know, one of the best things about our clinic is that in the process of getting healthier, and of course, weight comes along for the ride of that, is that, 
um, they, it frees them through the program, and I don't know if you could attest to this personally, is that you do get liberated from kind of the diet wars in your head. For many people, if anybody out there is sort of feeling like, you know, their life around weight and being healthy is kind of like, okay, well, what am I going to eat? What am I going to have for breakfast? What am I going to have for a snack? And I need to eat this and I need to do that and I need to fit in the workout. And what is healthy? And oh my gosh, I'm so confused. And oh, I can eat a little bit, but not too much. And how much is enough? We call this the diet wars raging inside your head. And for so many people, this war rages for almost all their life. I don't think that's an exaggeration to consider that for mo for many people, this is a war that rages in a conversation that's on their brain for a huge portion of their life. And what we do in our clinic over the span of a year, right, there's a lot to learn, there's a steep curve, there's lots to do. But as you start to complete it, complete the one year program with us, a lot of the feedback we get is that, you know, they're freed from this conversation, they're freed from the diet wars, they can say to me, you know, Dr. Laura, I don't even really have to think about this anymore. And when they say that, that's when I know we've reached success. I don't even really have to think about it. It's a game changer. I feel so much better. And, and I have now have time and energy to spend time with my kids, to do things that are healthy, to build my dream log home in Cape Breton, or to, uh, you know, renovate my garden. And, you know, whatever your dream is, right, to have the energy, to have the mind share, to be able to do that is really what we're trying to achieve. Absolutely. And again, I just want to say thank you so much. I know you've changed uh, lives around me. Uh, happy wife, happy life. And uh, she's so happy uh, with the change that you've helped all of us make uh, for our family. So with that, um, we would like to say again, thank you so much, Dr. Laura Reardon for that very, very informative talk. And uh, we would invite you to uh, check out uh, everything that NISO has to offer online. And uh, we hope you enjoy uh, the rest of your day. Thank you, Dr. Laura. Reardon. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Meg. Thanks, Niso. All you people out there. Okay. Bye-bye.